You read The Shadow of the Wind in Mm -hmm. one sitting? That is a really large book. I stayed up all night. (laughs) Don't tell my mom. Hey, readers. I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Today, Amy Roan joins me to talk about literal literary matchmaking. That is the ups and downs of her life as a reader who's in search of real-life romance. We're exploring what she looks for in a partner, whether they're a reader or not, and truly baffling stories from her attempts at talking to men on dating apps about books. We're also touching on her newfound love affair with nonfiction after a lifetime of sticking to fantastical fiction. Plus, bookstore architecture, stylish prose, and the book she had a huge grudge against in middle school. Of course, I'm delighted to play matchmaker myself and recommend three titles Amy may enjoy reading next. This episode aired in 2020 as episode 221 and features a great conversation with wonderful titles I'd happily recommend today. If you have not been listening to the show since 2020, I'm sure you'll love hearing my conversation with Amy for the first time. And if you are a What Should I Read Next completist, well, high five and thank you. I'd invite you to take another listen and see how this conversation and these books strike you now at this point in your reading life. As we often say around here, we are all about finding the right book for you right now. And maybe you'll find the timing is exactly right for one of these. Let's get to it. Amy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. We always ask if there's anything specific you'd like to discuss on the show. And you said books and dating because you have some funny stories about how guys have responded to your passion for books in your career. I've had a lot of guys brag to me about how much they don't like reading as a way to try to uh, charm me. (laughs) What do you say that leads to that response? Usually they'll, you know, have asked about, you know, what I do or what, like, what are my hobbies or what I like to do. Other times it's just responding to something that I listed on uh, my profile. Like I always list that I love books on whatever app that I'm using. One time I was talking with a guy and he asked me, you know, what I wanted to do for my career. And I said, I would love to work with books and in publishing. My dream job is to read all day. Um, And I kind of explained some things and he said, no offense, but that sounds really boring. (laughs) Was he going for like an opposite to track kind of thing? I I truly don't know. There's one dating app, it's called Hinge, where for your profile, you can pick different prompts and you can answer questions to, you know, give people an idea of, you know, what you like and who you are. And one of the prompts that I chose was, do you agree or disagree that? And then you fill in the blank. And I filled in the blank with, do you agree or disagree that the book is always better than the movie? Which is something I love discussing with people. And I had a lot of replies There were some replies that, you know, open discussion, but there were others that they would just list a movie and then say, period, done. That's it. Like, I got so many uh, Fight Club. (laughs) 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 They would say it like, Fight Club, done, no argument. I'm like, but that's not the point. (laughs) Right, 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 right. It felt very, you know, they, they were trying to challenge me. Clearly, you're wrong. It's not. 
And then I had one guy who responded with, I liked all of your other prompts, but not this one because I don't read. <laughs> and I was like, what mm-hmm. What was the point? Like, di- I, like, did you think that I would see that response and think, ooh, here's someone who I definitely want to talk to? <laughs> so is the book always better than the movie? 99% of the time, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> I do have some exceptions that I think you could make the argument for. But usually I would say the book is the book is better. But see, if the answer had been yes or no, then it wouldn't have been a good exactly because there's no conversation there. <laughs> you know what? We talk about our deal breakers in the reading life sometimes. Mm-hmm. I imagine that's a deal breaker in the dating life. I could and have, you know, dated people who don't necessarily like to read. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think wherein the problem lies is not being supportive of the passions of the person that you're dating. The last person I dated was not a reader at all, but he was very supportive of the fact that I have my head stuck in a book constantly and he would listen <laughs> he would listen to me rave about my favorites. I used to work at a summer camp and there wasn't great internet connection and Brandon Sanderson's uh, newest graphic novel White Sand had just come out. I was lamenting at how I wouldn't be able to order it for 2 weeks until I got to leave camp and he sent me a text a couple minutes later of a picture of the receipt on Amazon that he had ordered the book oh. for me and had it and had it sent to the camp. Yeah. So it's it's stuff like that where it's like you don't have to like reading but don't bash me <laughs> for liking it as much as I do. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. That's really sweet. Mm-hmm. Okay, I saw a meme on the internet that many of our listeners sent to us a dating app, but you share three books you love in one book you don't. And everybody was like, hey, that's the premise of what should I read next? And I thought, yeah, it totally is. And that's really fun. But no, that's not how you decide how people should come together. Mm -hmm. You can't agree on your favorites and least favorites or else like, what is there? What is there to talk about? (laughs) But the supporting thing, I like how you put that. So you mentioned dreams of working in publishing. Have you been pursuing that dream? What do you do for a living right now? I actually work at Simon & Schuster. Oh, what do you do there? I work in the sales department. Um, I'm the assistant for the national accounts team. So assisting all the managers who sell to big box retailers like Barnes & Noble, uh, Walmart, Target, airports, clubs, stuff like that. To really simplify it, we go to the buyers at various stores and you know present them with the list of our titles for upcoming seasons. And we say, these are all the great things that we're coming out with. And this is why you should have them in your store. Well, that's very exciting. How long have you been in publishing? I just started uh, in this role about six months ago. I started in July. And before that, I was working at the Union Square Barnes & Noble. Like, oh, I've been there, Amy. It's the biggest Barnes & Noble in the country. So it's a very popular tourist destination. A fun fact about our store, the type of architecture that's inside the building, I forget what it's called, but really cool columns and everything. And it's apparently like a really rare architectural style. So we get people who come in solely to take pictures of the interior of the store. Okay. Now I feel short-sighted because (laughs) the last time I was in the store, I was just like, where are my books? I'm going to go sign Mm -hmm. them. (laughs) I don't remember noticing the columns or the interior architecture at all. Like I remember all the Barnes and Noble green signs, but I'm going to be in New York really soon, actually. So I'll go back. I'll check it out. See what I was missing. That's so interesting. Yeah, I always thought that that was a really cool tidbit about the store. You went from working in books to working in books. Very lateral (laughs) career shift. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so that tells us a lot about your interests and competencies. We like yes. it. <laughs> Amy, so tell me a little bit about what your reading life looks like right now. I'm happy with where it is. I just started tracking what I read at the beginning of 2019. And that's kind of changed how I read. Oh, tell me more about that. I use the app called Bookly to track everything. And I categorize everything by month. When I pick up a book, I just hit the button that says start reading. And it times um, for how long that I read. And I can add quotes that I find interesting. I can write down thoughts to correspond with page numbers. And it tracks, you know, how many sessions, your average reading speed, which I think is really cool. Do you enjoy knowing that? Honestly, because I'd never even thought about it before. So I found it to be really interesting. No, me either. So how does it give you your reading speed? Is it like pages per hour or pages per minute? Pages per hour. Interesting. Mm -hmm. How has tracking books like that changed the way you read? I think it helped me create goals, definitely. My kind of reading philosophy has always been, I read what I want to read when I want to read it. And if I like something, I like it. And if I don't, I don't. And this has definitely, I think, helped me create goals because I realized I didn't read nonfiction at all whatsoever. And so last year, I decided to change that. And I've been pleasantly surprised, actually. That's definitely improved for sure. So, Amy, it sounds like you have had easy access to books for some time. Is this true of a lot of people who work in bookish professions? Like you've been a bookseller. Definitely. You're at a publisher. This is true also for a lot of teachers or librarians or sometimes people married to those people, roommates with those mm -hmm. people. What has that meant for what you choose to read? So actually, my mom is a teacher. <laughs> so I definitely um, have had books all throughout my life since a very early age. A lot of times, like when I would go into Barnes and Noble, I would choose what I wanted to read based on, you know, oh, this cover looks really interesting. Um, and if the summary sounded even mildly interesting, I was like, OK, I'll try this. Mm -hmm. For a while, I had a self-imposed book limit when I went shopping at Barnes & Noble, because, <laughs> because otherwise I would literally just buy the entire store. What was your limit? It was five. <laughs> <laughs> and how often would you go? A lot. <laughs> I, you know, I've had floor to ceiling bookshelves that have just been full to the brim my whole life. And I actually had a very rude awakening when I moved to New York City last summer is that I can't bring all my books with me because I just don't have oh, the no. space. Yeah. So that was a very hard thing to decide, like, which ones do I want to bring with me? What do I have room for? A very rude awakening. <laughs> but it sounds like you did move a lot of books. One really cool thing about my apartment is that my room has built in bookshelves uh, to, in the wall. What? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was very lucky in that I, I do have a space for that. And both of my roommates also work in publishing. So there's just books all over our apartment. <laughs> How did you decide what to bring with you? It was a mix of longtime favorites that like I know I want to reread and then things, I guess, at the top of my TBR, things that I really, really wanted to read. I actually, I'm originally from Philadelphia, which is a very easy train ride from New York. And so mm -hmm. every time I would visit home, I would pack a stack of books that I had finished <laughs> so I could drop them off uh, on my mom's bookshelf and then pick new ones to bring back. So how many books fit in your apartment? Oh, gosh. I'm asking you this, but I have only a very loose idea of how many books are actually on my bookshelf. At, at least 50. I don't think several hundred um, because it, <laughs> I live in New York, so I live in a shoebox. But <laughs> all three of us have our own collections of books in our rooms. And then we have a shelf in our living room. Nice. 
Has working with people who I imagine live and breathe and eat and sleep books changed the way you read? I think so. I mean, I absolutely love being surrounded by people that also love books. When I grew up, uh, I was actually made fun of for liking to read. Um, <laughs> yeah, that actually is why for a very long time, I had a very personal grudge with Twilight because I was made fun of for reading. And then I think when I was about, I think seventh or eighth grade is when Twilight blew up and became super popular. And then all of a sudden, now it's cool to read and everyone's reading Twilight. And I would just be hunkered down in the corner with my wheel of time, just being like, hmm, I hate Twilight. (laughs) 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 And of course, now I recognize that it got so many kids reading. And I think that that's absolutely amazing. So my opinion on it is I no longer have a grudge, but... (laughs) For a while, I was very resentful. (laughs) I'm glad that your concern for the common good (laughs) has let you find some peace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting about working in an office where everyone is reading all the time, I found books that I never would have considered because everyone's tastes are so different. Like I've read a couple of kind of like rom-com titles. It's a genre that's really popular in our office, but it's not something that I ever would have picked up for myself So I think that definitely finding new things through the tastes of people around you has been really cool. What did you read? I read Playing with Matches by Hannah Orenstein. At work, we have a monthly book club that is themed for each month. Oh, fun. And one theme was rom-coms, and that was the one that we read. And then I also read Dear Mr. Knightley. Mm Mm-hmm so cute. I loved it. (laughs) Oh, a Chicago story. Because I know Playing With Matches. I read that a few years ago and that's set in New York City. Yes. And last night I finished Tweet Cute by, is it Emma Lord? Mm -hmm. Set in New York City. And yeah, Dear Mr. Miley, Chicago. They're not all in New York apparently. (laughs) Well, that's fun. I like that your fellow readers are getting you out of your comfort zone. Did you always know that you wanted to grow up and spend your work life in the world of books? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about that. I was in high school when I decided that I wanted to be an English major because I knew that I wanted my whole life to just be surrounded by books. I always said that my dream job was to just read all day. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely doesn't happen in, in the world of publishing. You know, we have a lot of other things to do as well. But I always knew that I wanted to do something with books. For a while, I toyed with the idea of becoming a librarian. It was when I was in college that I, you know, realized I think publishing is the direction that I want to go. Interesting. It's not easy to get a job in publishing. I attended the Columbia Publishing course the summer of 2018. It's basically a grad school crash course (laughs) for publishing. And it's really, really great for networking. It was through that that I was able to, you know, get a lot of interviews and eventually find my current job. Okay. I did not know about that, but I bet a lot of people are taking notes right now. So Amy, you're happy with your reading life now. I'd love to hear how your reading habits have changed over the years. Some things have clearly been constant, but I know that your taste has not been constant. Can you tell me about that? I'm a huge sci-fi fantasy nerd and I love a good murder mystery. Give me Agatha Christie any day of the week and I will be happy. And I read a lot of young adult fiction as well. And so while I don't usually you know, like to judge a book by its genre, I did have ones that I tended to stick with. Now I found that, you know, the more I read outside of those genres, you know, the more hidden gems that I'm finding. And I feel like I'm a very much more well-rounded reader. 
Well, I love that that's encouraging you to branch out. How do you feel when you look back and you look at young Amy's reading life? Sometimes I can look back on my own life and go, hey, like there were some definite seeds of good taste there. Mm -hmm. And then some of the books I know I was obsessed with when I was younger, I just think, oh, Anne. (laughs) I I think for me, it's less in terms of taste and more of that I was really pretentious (laughs) about my reading. Oh, I love it. Tell me more. I mean, like I read Lord of the Rings and the Wheel of Time series like in eighth grade. (laughs) I would carry around like a gigantic tome and be like, I'm reading this huge book. Aren't I so smart? (laughs) So first of all, I totally relate because I forget what the specific assignment was. But I know in eighth grade, I took the unabridged Les Miserables to the beach. And I just think, why? I took a European literature course my junior year of high school. And for all of the books that we read, Les Mis was one. Uh, Count of Monte Cristo was another. I've still never read that. <laughs> we were assigned the abridged versions. And I uh-huh. went out and used my own money to buy the unabridged versions. And I read those instead. <laughs> Okay, so this is not a therapy session. And yet I would seriously love to explore because it's not just you and it's not just me. Like, Mm -hmm. what is it with some readers that really want to take on the like huge, massive, intimidating, especially when you're 13 Mm -hmm. tomes and that want to do the unabridged when the abridged would be totally sufficient for the task at hand? Is this something that you've spent time reflecting on? A little bit. Now I think, you know, a book is 180 pages. I'll speed through it in a couple hours. And I'll, it's, you know, I think just as great of a reading experience as, you know, dragging out an 800 page book over, you know, the course of a month or two. So I think it's just being open to whatever your reading life can throw at you and not, you know, discounting something, you know, based on what your like preferred length is or preferred genre or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Do you still see that not pretension, but desire to aim big and do it right in your reading life today? Honestly, I'm a little bit intimidated by big books now, just because I have a full-time job and I have less time to devote to bigger books. And that's partially why I still haven't read any Stephen King, because they're all massive. (laughs) I know. Like I remember in high school, when I was 17, I had to write an essay about something we loved that nobody else did. And I wrote about long books. I thought if you love a book, then like, let's keep it going. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as you finish, you have to choose another one. But if you've got a good thing going, like, then let's keep it up. But I'm so reluctant now to pick up the longer ones, because I know that's fewer titles I'll be able to get to, not because like I want to rack up the numbers, but because there's so much I want to sample. Exactly. You know, I'd rather have the tasting menu than like the hearty one pot meal when it comes to my reading. (laughs) And that's why I think I'm a little reluctant to pick up, you know, longer series nowadays, because I just think, oh, that's such a commitment. Like, am I ready to devote all my time to this, you know, like eight book series or something when I have so many things that are just piled on my desk that I want to get to. Yes. And I know that there are a lot of readers who want to wait until a series is complete before they begin it. Mm -hmm. And I don't have that kind of patience, but I absolutely (laughs) respect that. Mm -hmm. However, I think if a series goes on for a long time and by the time you start it, you have 27 books to read. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's... Really intimidating to me. (laughs) I haven't picked up Elizabeth George, for example, because Mm -hmm. she keeps writing. And now there's 20-something books in her series. And I hear you're (laughs) supposed to start at the beginning. I'm really glad I started Louise Penny when there are only like seven. 
And that seemed like a lot at the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, are you a series reader? Because you like genres that do series really well. I am. Brandon Sanderson is my favorite author, and he's all about long series. So, <laughs> A bookstore friend of mine was just saying that Brandon Sanderson was her favorite find of the decade, but I've never read his work. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Amy, we know you love to read. Is there a book that has played a specific role in your life that you can point to? Yes, it's one of my three books I love. <laughs> well, are you ready to talk about your books? Sure, yeah. Amy, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately, and we'll talk about what you may enjoy reading next. Yeah. Um, so the first book I chose is my favorite book of all time. Um, it's The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafon. I do a reread every year. Honestly, I think it's the most beautiful book that I've ever read in my entire life. It's set in 1945 Barcelona, right after their civil war. And our protagonist is a young boy named Daniel who is reeling over the loss of his mother. Um, So his father takes him to a place called the Cemetery of Forgotten Books, where when you enter for the first time, you are tasked with picking a book and protecting it for the rest of your life. So Daniel picks up this book called The Shadow of the Wind by Julian Carax. He reads it in one night he falls in love with it. And so he goes to try to find other works by this author, but he discovers that someone has been going around and buying all copies that exist and burning them. And it was translated from its original Spanish. So the language is so lyrical and beautiful. And one thing I really love about the book is that at the end, it includes a walking tour of Barcelona. Um, so you can follow in Daniel's footsteps if you ever visit. I have read that book and I forgot all about the walking tour. Mm -hmm. I've not been to Barcelona. Have you been to the setting of your favorite book? I haven't either. I really want to, though. It's definitely, definitely on my bucket list. I'm glad to hear it. It sounds like it really has earned a place there. You just said you reread Shadow of the Wind once a year. Is this something you always begin on January 1st or do you just know that you circle back to it? (laughs) I usually try to make it um, my last read of the year. So end of December. What made you decide to do that? So the first time I read it, I believe I was in middle school. Similarly to Daniel, I read it in one sitting in one night and I fell in love with it. You read The Shadow of the Wind in Mm -hmm. one sitting? (laughs) That is a really large book. I stayed up all night. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell my mom. (laughs) I wouldn't dream of it. Then I, you know, started reading different things. And then I realized that I've been saying that this is my favorite book, but I haven't read it in a while. And so I sat down to reread it and I decided that I love this world so much that I just want to keep coming back to it. I love that. (laughs) Okay, so I could probably do the math, but how many times through have you read it now? I think six or seven. How many more times do you think you'll read through it? Countless. (laughs) (laughs) Amy, what did you choose for your second favorite book? Um, So the next one I chose is A Winter's Promise, uh, which is book one, Uh book one of the uh, Mirror Visitor Quartet by Christelle Dabos. When I saw that Europa was publishing a YA edition, I was so excited and couldn't wait to read it. And I can see that book from where it is on my Mm -hmm. shelf, but I haven't read it yet. I discovered this series last year. The world building, I thought, was really unique. 
that the characterization was definitely something that grabbed my attention. The female protagonist, um, Ophelia, I think that she's really different from uh, heroines that I usually read in young adult fiction. I find that a lot of times they're characterized, you know, very blustering and, you know, very ferocious and fierce. And Ophelia is the complete opposite. She's quiet and she's unassuming you would think that, you know, that would be her weakness, but she actually uses it to her strength um, because um, she's been placed in this political game and she's so unassuming that everyone underestimates her. So I think that that's something that's really unique about her character. So this is a planned quartet. I believe there are two installments out now. Have you read the second one yet? Yes. And I also loved it. Okay. So you are not a wait till the series is complete reader. For this one, no. Although when I realized that the third one wasn't out yet, I was I'm I'm a little impatient, so I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm very excited for when it does get translated. Is it a blessing or curse to work in publishing and having a very intimate knowledge of how the timelines work and what can affect them and why you might be waiting longer and why it really is impossible for you to get these books as fast as you would like them? Does that help you or hurt you? Yeah, I think it helps. Definitely. You know, you can see, you know, the thought process that goes behind in all of the work that it takes to publish a book. Amy, what did you choose to round out your favorites? So my last pick was The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton. It was one of my first reads of 2019. And I love murder mysteries and read so many that I found sometimes it's hard for me to be surprised And one thing that I really love about this one is that it felt fresh and exciting and I didn't expect any of the twists. And when I was done, I immediately wanted to reread it so I could pick up on all of the clues that I had missed during my first read. Oh, nice. Did you go back through and read it a second time? I did. What was that experience like? It was honestly really rewarding to, you know, see the little clues that were being dangled in the beginning of the book and be like, oh, I know what's going to happen because of that now. And kind of having that perspective, um, like even though you know the ending, it's Mm -hmm. really cool to get new information on each reread. I think that that's really cool. Yes, definitely. Now, the structure of this book is really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So you follow the main character, Aiden, who wakes up in a body that isn't his own he realizes that he has to solve Evelyn Hardcastle's murder. He's in a cycle. And so if he doesn't figure it out by the end of the week, then the cycle will start again and he'll lose all of his memories of the previous cycle. So he has to start from scratch. And the twist is that every day that he has, he wakes up in a different person's body. What? So when I've heard it described as having a Groundhog Day like set up, they're talking about the Bill Murray movie. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That sounds almost like a comic novel, but I don't believe that's the tone at all, is it? No. Tell me more about what it feels like to read it. It's got a very gothic vibe because um, it's set in this big, sprawling manner. I guess like 19, I guess 30s-ish vibe. You know, like very aristocratic guests in a gigantic mansion and there's, you know, murder afoot. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very Agatha Christie. Yes, very. Uh, do you like her or is she predictable? Oh, growing up, we had an entire container full of her books underneath our guest room bed. (laughs) (laughs) That I'm imagining that you knew your way around them. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Amy, tell me about a book that wasn't right for you. So a couple of months ago, my book club read Layover by David Bell, and it was not my favorite. (laughs) 
our main character travels a lot for work. So he has, he spends a lot of time in airports on layovers. And so one day he's in the airport when he meets uh, this woman, basically falls in love with her immediately. They start chatting and she is acting weirdly, but he doesn't, you know, think anything of it. And then she has to leave. She leaves him with a parting kiss and says, don't worry, we'll never see each other again. And he decides to follow her (laughs) on her plane. And she says that she doesn't know him when he tries to talk to her and he's really confused. And so when they land um, at the airport, he sees a missing persons report and it's her. And so he basically tries to unravel the mystery of this woman. Did it generate good conversation? It did because we all kind of felt the same way. (laughs) Oh, really? Oh, that's so interesting. Usually in this book club, that's not the case. Usually it's very, you know, differing opinions on things. But this one, everyone was kind of in agreement that it wasn't really anyone's favorite. The premise reminds me a little bit of The Kind Worth Killing by Peter Swanson. Is that one you, friend? I don't know that one. I believe this was his debut and he's been cranking them out since then. Mm -hmm. He has a new one out called Eight Perfect Murders. Oh, that's on my list. I haven't read it. It's not high on my to read list just because of priorities and, Mm -hmm. you know, book needs that I have. This is a real thing, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But Eight Perfect Murders, that cover is not not heartwarming. <laughs> Ugh, there's dripping blood. It's a little gross. Yeah. Okay. So layover, not for you. Mm-mm. Amy, what have you been reading recently? I just finished uh, Star Sight by Brandon Sanderson. It's the sequel to Skyward, um, which is his young adult uh, sci-fi series. There's a human colony um, that crash landed on a faraway planet on the run from an alien race, and they've had to band together um, and train as pilots in order to defend themselves. Brandon Sanderson is prolific. He's written so many books. What is it about them that keeps you coming back? I'm a huge fan of world building. In every series of his, the world is so unique in either the magic systems or, you know, the planets. The characters are always really a great way um, for him to ground, I guess, his world. You know, even we're on this far off planet in the galaxy, but our main character, you know, she's just trying to survive. The worlds are always really great. And also his books are really character driven, which I really connect with. That is good to know. (laughs) So that is Skyward by Brandon Sanderson. Yes. And I just finished the sequel, which is Starsight. If one wanted to jump into Brandon Sanderson, where do you recommend they begin? Ooh, okay. Probably his most popular series is the Mistborn trilogy. I started with Elantris, um, which is, I think it's the first one he wrote, and it's a standalone. Um, I discovered him because he finished uh, Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series. And so I decided to check him out and immediately I fell in love with his writing. Miss Warren is probably a good place to start. And then his Stormlight Archive series, those are all the gigantic like 800 page books. They're amazing, but I probably wouldn't start with them. Amy, you mentioned that you wanted to read more nonfiction Mm -hmm. this year, but not necessarily memoir or nature writing. Yes. Would you tell me a little more about this goal and how you're hoping to achieve it? 
I know that I already like nature writing and memoirs. That's how I kind of got into reading nonfiction. And so I definitely want to branch out with genres since I don't really know what I like in terms of, I guess, like history or food writing. I'm kind of up in the air of what could catch my attention. And so I definitely want to branch out and see, you know, what genres I really start gravitating towards. I did the math and I read 12 nonfiction books last year. So I have a a goal of 15 for this year. Okay. How many have you read so far? One. (laughs) And what was it? The Courage to be Disliked. We read it for my book club at work. The January theme is self-help. Do you have themes in mind to help you pick? You're just going to see what looks good. Pretty much. Yeah. Just see, you know, what catches my attention. I have a couple on my desk that I do want to start soon. Oh, what are they? Midnight in Chernobyl. Also, like a little intimidated to start because it's so big. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the nice thing about those huge nonfiction books, I mean, the nice thing to readers who are intimidated by the longer books Mm -hmm. is frequently a significant percentage of the book Mm -hmm. in the back is notes in the index and the footnotes. Mm -hmm. My son has a 900 page book he's reading right now for school. He felt a lot better when he saw like 120 pages in the back. (laughs) Not part of the page count that he needed to be reading. Mm -hmm. Eighth grade Anne would be like, the longer the better. Me too. (laughs) Do you feel like you need help choosing those nonfiction titles? The ones that I have read were kind of picked for me, you know, through book clubs. So I definitely want to be able to recognize something, you know, interesting on my own. Okay. This will be fun, but good gracious. I've circled a lot of really promising titles on my list for you. So what you loved was The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafon, A Winter's Promise by Christelle Davos, And The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton. Layover by David Bell was not for you. And recently you've been reading more Brandon Sanderson and The Courage to Be Disliked. You're looking for nonfiction that's not nature writing or memoirs. You always love murder mysteries and atmospheric novels. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say so. And great world building is something you really notice. How about a brain bender okay. that's masquerading as historical fiction? Have you read Kate Atkinson? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. Your picks all have very stylish prose mm-hmm. put together by people who know their way around the written word. The reason I thought Life After Life is she does really interesting things with structure in this book. Groundhog Day would not necessarily come to mind, but it totally could have because there's a lot of symbolism in this book. This is historical fiction. It's set in the early 20th century. It's set in the run-up to World War II. And the protagonist's name is Ursula Todd. She's a young woman whose life you come to discover, and you discover faster if you know what you're looking at and pay attention to the symbolism, is an Ouroboros, or a snake eating its tail. I went into this book knowing absolutely nothing. I knew that she'd written the Jackson Brody mysteries. This was actually the first book I read by her, and it definitely took me a while to get my bearings. Ursula Todd is born. She lives. She makes decisions. They go badly. She dies, and then she comes back and gets to do it again. And each time she comes back, she is her. She doesn't wake up as a different person separate different times. But it's like she incorporated what she learned before. And so she comes back a little wiser and a little stronger. And with each life, she goes further. So in the earlier versions of her life, she meets very different 
demises. But it's interesting to see how starting from such a similar point, when she chooses differently at the fork in the road, she ends up in a totally different place. And I don't want to tell you too much because it would be spoilerish, but in some threads, she's up close to hugely important historical events. If you like this, there's a quasi follow-up to this book called A God in Ruins. And this one focuses more on her brother, who's a fighter pilot in World War II. And he's one of the pilots who knows, like, when you have a mission go poorly, you are going to die, you're going to be shot down. And he really feels like it's just a question of time until he dies, because that's what happens to the pilots around him. But that book does very interesting things with time and structure and narrative and how the choices we make affect our reality in ways that are almost painful to grasp. She's got this wry, darkly comic British voice that really works for a lot of readers. So that's Life After Life by Kate Atkinson. How does it sound to you? That sounds amazing. (laughs) Okay. You said world building. And of course, I started thinking about Neil Schusterman and Neil Gaiman. I never realized those were both Neils before. (laughs) Interesting. But the world building also made me think, it's getting a lot of buzz. It's called Saint X by Alexis Shaken. Is this one you know? I don't know that one either. It is a murder and there is a mystery, but it's not like Louise Penny, Tana French, Jackson Brody that we've been talking about. This is... A book thoroughly set in its time and place. So it's not sci-fi <laughs> and it's not Barcelona 1945, but I still think that you may enjoy its setting. Also, its protagonist works in publishing. Oh, I'm not sure why exactly. It may be just so she can have a job where she's largely self-directed for a long time. And so nobody can know things are going badly when she checks out because she's investigating her long dead sister's murder. It comes time to pay up. This book is about what happens after a teenager dies on vacation on the fictional Caribbean island of St. X. It's not a real place, but the way they describe it and the islands near it and the excursion spots and the what it's like, it did make me wonder, like, is St. X short for something? Have I read about this? Surely this would be terrible for tourism. They, they can't. It's completely fictional. So what happens is this very wealthy New York City family goes on vacation to, again, fictional St. X, like they always do. They always go to some swanky resort. The older daughter is in college. The younger daughter is quite a bit younger. The older daughter dies at the resort. It is never determined what happened. They don't know if she was murdered or if there was a horrible accident. They just know that her body was found a couple of days after she disappeared. So we fast forward and the younger sister, Claire, is all grown up living in New York City and the death of her sister is still hanging over her life. Her parents have moved on. Not in a callous way, but they are able to pull it together and have a life. But Claire is still very much struggling with this 20 years later. So she's living in New York City. And one day she takes a taxi and she gets in the car and she sees the ID. She realizes that her taxi driver is one of the two men who was accused and briefly held in St. X for murdering her sister. And she becomes obsessed with this man. And it sends her on this whole journey, like back into the past again, thinking what could have happened, what could have happened, what could have happened. And she gets her sister's diaries from her mom and she starts researching. Everything else in her life falls away as she becomes seriously obsessed with her sister's death. 
and with this man who was involved in it somehow. It's such an interesting tale of obsession and what ifs and the unknown. It's an edge of your seat kind of story. It constantly keeps you guessing. I think it could be really fun for you. The world building is great. I will say for sensitive readers, obviously think what this book is about. There are a couple racy scenes too. So it's definitely not for everybody, but how does that sound? Oh, this sounds like it'll be a new favorite for sure. All right. I hope you enjoy it. Since I did mention the Neils, if you haven't read Scythe or Stardust, surely you have. You're a sci-fi fan. Um. <laughs> oh my gosh. Please do. Can I tell you something amazing I just found out about Neil Schusterman and Scythe? Yes. You're a sci-fi nerd <laughs> in your own description. But this is a book that so many readers will say, I don't even read sci-fi, but, 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 but this book was so good. It's like a little bit utopia, a little bit dystopia all at once. This is set in a future where death has been eradicated. And now the only ones who can bring life to an end are called scythes. And there are these two teenagers who are apprenticed to a scythe. And this is a role they didn't want. This is the kind of book that like plunges you into the midst of their moral dilemma and makes you wonder like, oh, what would I do? What does this mean? Like so much good science fiction does. It's a book that prods you to evaluate what it means to be human through the lens of a really compelling story. I do have a copy on my desk. <laughs> Are you serious? It's one of those ones that I know that I should have read by now and that I will get to hopefully this year since the third one did just come out. But unfortunately, I haven't gotten to it yet. Uh, you got a lot you got to read. <laughs> I read that Neil Schusterman's favorite thing to jumpstart his writing was to go on a cruise. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This sounds super lavish. But <laughs> let me tell you what. Cruises are super cheap in the off season. They include your food. Someone else cleans up your mess. You focus better than you do at your desk at home. You wake up in a place you didn't go to sleep. That's kind of cool. But you don't have to think about how you actually got there. He says he goes. He doesn't get off the ship. And he hangs out in the coolest place he can find on board. And he just writes. And it's easier to get in the zone. I read specifically that when he was working on completing Scythe, he had a tight deadline. It wasn't going particularly well, but he knew he wanted it to be the best book he'd ever written. So he scheduled an emergency cruise because apparently that's a thing. He went away for seven days, worked 12 hours a day, got the last 80 pages written and submitted it. Please read Sanex first and then visualize Neil Schusterman like <laughs> sailing around Hibiscus Bay like they talk about in the book. That would be a really nice meeting of bookish worlds. I would love to have the kind of life where I could go on emergency cruises. <laughs> you know, there's some real downsides to the writing life, but I think he's got a perk, especially <laughs> when you're getting advances to pay for it. Yeah. Oh, but we didn't give you a nonfiction book. <laughs> Can I tell you about a book I just read? Yes. Okay. Now, I understand that people in New York City do not only need to read about New York City, <laughs> but I just finished reading a book about sanitation workers in New York City. Oh, okay. Does that sound interesting to you? Definitely, yeah. I got to say, there was more history of trash and sanitation here than I expected. It reminded me strongly, actually, of certain chapters of Vitold Rybzinski's A Clearing in the Distance that goes into the life of Frederick Law Olmsted, who had some important formative years in his young career in New York City. And the city was kind of a mess at the time. So it really reminded me of that. That's an excellent book that's not nature writing or memoir if architecture and urban planning and landscape architecture appeals to you. But back to the sanitation book, it's called Picking Up on the Streets and Behind the Trucks with the Sanitation Workers of New York City. It's by Robin Nagel. 
this book did go into lengthy discourses about topics that I was like, yeah, 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 let's get back to the good part. So with that qualifier in place, oh my goodness, there was so much I didn't know. I didn't know about sanitation workers in general, sanitation workers in New York City specifically. It's a fine-tuned machine that the city could not function without. There's just so much I did not know, some of which applies to my neighborhood here in Louisville, Kentucky, and some of which is extremely specific to New York City. For people looking to discover a topic that they had no idea they wanted to know about, this could definitely count. That book is called Picking Up on the Streets and Behind the Trucks with the Sanitation Workers of New York City. It's by Robin Nagel, and it came out in 2013. How does that sound to you, Amy? That sounds really awesome. (laughs) And this was actually recommended to me by a past podcast guest, Rissy Lumberg. She sends me great book recommendations. (laughs) That was episode 123. It was called Books That Will Totally Make You Cry with Laughter. Okay, Amy, of the books we talked about today, Life After Life by Kate Atkinson, Saint X by Alexis Shaitkin, Scythe by Neil Schusterman, and also we didn't go into it, but Stardust by Neil Gaiman. (laughs) And Picking Up on the Streets and Behind the Trucks with the Sanitation Workers of New York City by Robin Nagel. Of those books, what do you think you'll read next? Logistically speaking, probably Scythe, since I already own a copy. That makes a lot of sense to me. But of the other ones, definitely Picking Up. I think that that sounds so fascinating. And I love learning about New York City and, you know, where I live. So I think that that'll definitely be next after that. Well, I can't wait to hear what you think. Thank you so much for talking books with me today. Yes, thank you. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Amy, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Catch up on Amy's reading life on Instagram at Amy underscore Roan. That's Amy underscore R-O-H-N. Follow along on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your favorite podcast platform. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. And be sure to find us on Instagram. I'm there at Ann Bogle, that's Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L, and our show's page at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the latest from What Should I Read Next HQ. If you're not on the list, sign up today at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is created each week by Will Bogle, Holly Wilkachevsky, and Studio D Podcast Production. This episode was originally produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>